Hello, and welcome to Beyond Japan, an interdisciplinary podcast that looks at the broad reach of Japanese studies from within and beyond Japan. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for Japanese Studies at the Sainsbury Institute for the Study of Japanese Arts and Cultures, in collaboration with the University of East Anglia. I'm your host, Oliver Moxham, Research Project Coordinator at the Sainsbury Institute and researcher of language and Japanese war heritage. This week we are joined by Dr. Eiko Honda, Research and Teaching Associate in History at the Nissan Institute of Japanese Studies and former Robert and Lisa Sainsbury Fellow at the Sainsbury Institute to discuss knowledge production during crisis. As an historian of intellectual history, Eiko will explain the need to move beyond universal narratives from Euro-American institutions and embrace a transnational approach to researching global issues for tackling the crises of today. We hope you enjoy the show. Good morning, Eiko. Thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks, Sully, for having me. So first of all, we'd like to know a bit more about you. Can you tell us about your area of expertise and how your interests have brought you there? Sure. Uh, I specialize in a field called intellectual history and uh, particularly focus on the period of modern Japan. And I'm, I guess I'm interested in things that don't make sense in the existing narrative of history. So, for example, um, in my current work, I study the life and work of independent naturalist polymers, Minakata Kumagusu. And Kumagusu is very much known uh, as a popular figure in Japan as an eccentric genius, and because he contributed to immensely to both fields of humanities and science. Um, but nobody quite understood what he was trying to do because his important sources of knowledge, for example, Buddhism, was a complete antithesis of this narrative of modernization through westernization the Meiji government was embracing. And uh, he never became an institutional university professor, or he never ended up publishing a monograph on his work. And so he appeared a kind of eccentric anomaly in the history. So my job here is to illuminate the underlying logic that interconnected all of these seemingly dispersive activities and intellectual output he was engaging with. And by doing that, I aim to reveal what kind of paradigm these people whose work didn't make sense in the history were operating within so that we can understand them in their own terms without marginalizing them or dismissing them as a fragmented occurrence. Because uh, actually, as much as, for example, Kumagusu was seen as an eccentric figure, he was not an isolated phenomenon. He was uh, engaging intensely in conversation with various historical actors, like such uh, the Chinese revolutionary Sun Yat-sen and the so-called founder of the Minzokugaku or the folklore studies, Japanese folklore studies, Yanagita Kunio. So these are the paradigms that many people engage with, but we never quite understood what interconnected them together. I see. Thank you. So uh, today I'd like to discuss with you a 2020 article you wrote with Amanda Power and Eva Pessa entitled Undoing the Discipline, History in the Time of a Climate Crisis and COVID-19, where you all discussed the entanglements between human and planetary life and the need to decenter knowledge production. 
Could you start by defining knowledge production for us and explaining why it needs to be dissented? Sure. So when I talk about knowledge production, it typically refers to the institutional education and research at modern universities. And the form of knowledge production here, as we know it, has been organized through disciplinary boundaries between science and social sciences and humanities. And these these uh, uh, classifications also had uh, a competing relationships often and even hierarchies as it's understood within the wider societies. And this form of knowledge production, historically speaking, was institutionalized in the late 19th century Europe. And this model has been adapted by various countries in the world as part of the so-called modernization through westernization process. And Japan was, of course, no exception. And within this paradigm, the center of knowledge production and the kind of epistemologies that gets used uh, revolved around Europe and North America. So why does this need to be decentered, particularly today then? Yeah, so when I say decentering, uh, the necess- it's necessary to decenter the knowledge production. We're really talking about this decentering of epistemology, epistemology meaning the uh, studies of knowledge or how one comes to understand the world. And as I mentioned earlier, the epistemology here has been predominantly a Eurocentric one. And uh, so I can give an example. The notion of development and even the field of the development studies that's still prominent in our time. When we use this notion to try ask questions and find answers, we are inevitably placing the industrialized West as a foremost model of civilizational progress that everyone else should be following. And Historically, this idea emerged with an assumption that there's a human supremacy over the non-human so-called natural resources that we can be endlessly extracting and in order to make a civilizational progress in the world. And the issue that comes with it is not only the environmental issues, but also the social issues and racial and gender issues, because the normative idea of so-called humans was in this idea, when we go back to the late 19th century, was defined by the idea of a white, elite, heterosexual male. And within this paradigm, people of colour and women and LGBTQ plus people were being considered in failure and closer to the non-civilized so-called savage, and therefore they must modernize, but modernize in the light of these specific identities. So I can see that it's really important to understand this knowledge production and how it plays out in society today through things such as societal issues like racism to health and scientific issues like climate change and the pandemic then. Mm, Yes, absolutely. Uh, And these are absolutely pressing global issues that we need to be tackling today. And uh, academically, we need to update ourselves with the kind of um, knowledge production that's more attuned to present time and space. 
I see. So your article calls for historians to take control of various narratives produced in the middle of a crisis, not just the COVID-19 pandemic, but also broader man-made crises such as global warming, which you refer to as uh, anthropogenic or man-made. Can you clarify for us what the role of, a, of an historian is in such crises? Yeah, sure. I guess it's extremely important to facilitate the public and wider society to move away from the singular epistemological narrative. So by doing that, we can broaden the historical trajectory of how we may understand how we arrive at our present time and situation. And it very much also relates to the new methods or modes of knowledge production that we can be adapting to educate the next generation of cohabitants of the arts very much. And as you may know, uh, children and young people across the world are actually demanding a new type of education that would prepare them to navigate these anthropogenic crisis. And yet the kind of epistemological traditions we are using in knowledge production in the higher education are often not necessarily matching up with this reality. So how do we achieve this then? What are the uh, alternatives? Mm, so uh, perhaps I can make a couple of suggestions. And if the listeners of this podcast have any other suggestions, I'd love to learn from them as well. So my suggestion is perhaps we can begin by asking ourselves the ways in which we uncover and teach history. Do they simply follow the developmental model of historical narratives? Or who are the main historical actors that, that we are examining? And so we need to embrace and create more plural ways of illuminating the understanding of the planetary past. So, for example, can we combine the natural history curriculum with history curriculum that predominantly centred around human past? And these initiatives actually emerging more and more at various places in the world. So I can also exemplify this through my research or example that I talked about in this research paper we are discussing today. So, for example, the, the idea of modern period is typically understood as a period when humans took power over the non-humans through industrialization and also imperialism and human, as in this specific human I talked about, but they are actually histories that did not necessarily conform with this idea of modernities. And there are other kinds of ideas of what it means to be modern and civilized that was actually emerged, existed in history, but not really in our historiography. So in the article, I talked about Kumagusu's alternative notion of ecology that took the dynamic between the non-human lives in the so-called environmental nature and social societal dynamics and even human psychological state and that tied our relationship to localized communities can be included in this study of so-called ecology. So these ideas cannot be categorized into a single classification of social history, environmental history, or the history of science and so, so on. And it's important to break away from the existing mold and engage ourselves perhaps by interdisciplinary thinking and read widely beyond our immediate specialization of discipline 
and work together with other specialists across regions, periods and expertise. And uh, the article that we're talking about today very much demonstrate this kind of alternative method of knowledge production we are talking about. Because uh, my course author, Dr. Amanda Power, she specializes in intellectual medieval Europe. And Dr. Abba Pesa, she specializes in social and environmental history of contemporary Africa. So this is my idea. Yeah. But yeah, not only my idea, but many people are actually increasing in joining. So you just mentioned that uh, your paper covers many different uh, cultural contexts. Um, and this might be beyond the scope of that. But I wondered if you could expand on what you've just discussed and talk about how it might play out in Japanese studies. Yeah, thanks for asking that. Um, I think um, Japanese studies itself is an extremely exciting field of study to engage with this kind of knowledge production beyond the discipline of history. Um, firstly, uh, as the title of this podcast, Beyond Japan, uh, suggest it's an interdisciplinary field. Uh, Japanese study area studies uh, are essentially uh, interdisciplinary. But also secondary, Japan is an area that existed at the conjuncture of at least two different kinds of epistemological paradigms. One is, as we talked about earlier, uh, the westernized modernity pursued by the state. And another is a local epistemology that did not fully resort to the state-centric, uh, Eurocentric and human-centric ways of knowing. So Japan carries extremely rich records of localized social, political and intellectual phenomena that negotiated their livelihood to coexist with the state method of knowledge production. So there's, there's so much possibility in here. So is this something you think academics as individuals need to put into their work or something that requires uh, broader institutional change? Yeah, that's a very, very important thing to be reflecting on right now. And I think that's actually a chicken or egg kind of a question, um, because the more individual academics engage with these forms of knowledge production, the more likely an institutional change would happen. But at the same time, in order to encourage that, I think well, one of the many things that the institutional change would help is how uh, perhaps value that the system places in co-authored work, for example, in the discipline of histories, is valued less than single authored piece. So when I talk about collaborative work, I don't necessarily mean that we need to sort of shift our focus from single authored pieces to collaborative piece, but what I mean is in order to advance single authored individual research, we also need to be engaging with collaborative work. And so, so in order to encourage that, I think uh, it's very important that there's systematic, some kind of systematic change that, uh, that would, um, that would um, benefit people that, or, or not necessarily just benefit, but like encourage, I guess, this kind of activities. Because it's not only essential for the time that we live in, where the, there's anthropogenic disasters, I think collaborative learning and research across this diverse speciality is an extremely exciting approach to take. And because if you think about it, 
there's a limit to what and how one individual can know or do on their own. And through this kind of collaboration, we can actually nurture the kind of, of innovative mindset that can think and act outside the box and push the existing boundaries of what we thought we knew and what we thought might be possible. Definitely. I mean, I can tell from my own experience of hosting this podcast how every different field has its own perspectives which can be valuable to other fields and that's you know an invaluable thing to incorporate in your own studies yes absolutely great well thank you for answering my questions Ego. before we finish the episode could you share with us what other projects you're currently working on Sure, yes. Uh, my main project right now is a monograph project on Minakata Kumagasu that I mentioned at the beginning of this episode. And the foundational part of this monograph is actually coming out from the journal Modern Asian Studies. It's titled Minakata Kumagasu and the Emergence of Queer Nature, the Civilization Theory, Buddhist Science and Microbe, 1887 and um, so uh, please check it out when it comes out. And uh, at the same time, I'm developing a new project proposal on another modern polymers, but this time incorporating elements of the art and literature and it basically building on my art background. I didn't mention in this episode, but I, uh, as you know, I worked as a art curator for about eight years before moving on to this field of intellectual history. So yes, I'm thrilled to be embarking on these things. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, thank you for joining me again, Aiko. It's been a real pleasure. Okay, great. Thanks, Oli. You can find a link to Echo's research profile in the description below. Don't forget to subscribe on japaninnorwich.org or find us on your preferred podcast provider for updates on new episodes. Next week we'll be joined by art historian, curator and writer David Elliott to discuss art as a means of cultural exchange. David shares with us his experience of challenging the Euro-American concept of modern art by exhibiting contemporary Asian, African and Latin American artists, as well as his new approach of looking at art history through trousers. We hope you'll join us then. Thank you for listening.